Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Start your 2024 off right with some new clothes from Leon Tailoring. Something new, something tailor made, something ready made, or something custom made. They got the finest in men's and ladies' apparels, and they also take care of you as well. They've been around for almost so near 100 years and some change, and don't stick around that long unless you're getting it right. So get it over to Leon Tailoring. Tell them Abdul sent you, and they'll take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, in downtown Indianapolis. Good morning, everyone. Good to have you all here. I hope you're as ready as we are for the 2024 legislative session. In a few minutes, you'll hear from my colleagues who are carrying our five agenda bills this year. As I've said all along, this year is going to be a nuts and bolts legislative session. And we've passed significant legislation in recent years, including new laws that resulted in major tax cuts, we cut our state debt, passed bills to lower health care costs and made innovative changes towards K-12 education system. And we need to let those items go to work. Uh, what, we're, what you're going to see is that our agenda this year is addressing important issues, though they may not be as flashy as they have been, have invited have been in previous years. That said, most of the most important thing we do this year is going to be helping schools address our literacy rates. You'll see that's Senate Bill number one. Senator Rogers, um, but Senator Rogers is here for her today, is going to speak to you about that in a moment. You're also going to hear about child care affordability and access, guardrails on prior authorization, government accountability, and upgrading lead water lines. We aren't here <clears throat> to let a legislative session pass us by without doing good things for Hoosiers. We're here to pass good government measures. Maybe that's not as flashy as some years, but good government is extremely important to me. It's extremely important to our caucus, and it's important to Hoosiers. So without further delay, I'll hand it over to Senator Rotz, who is standing in for Senator Rogers, who couldn't be here this morning, to detail our top priority. Senator Rotz. Thank you, Senator Gray. Uh, and thank you all for being here today. As we get started, I want to acknowledge I am the pitch hitter for Senator Rogers this morning. As, as Senator Bray mentions, he's unable to be here. As many as you know, uh, education is almost half of our state's budget. In our current budget, we committed $10 billion each year to educating young Hoosiers. Arguably, the most important thing in our schools, our schools do with these dollars is teach young students to read. We have data today showing that about one in five students cannot read effectively by the end of the, their third grade. With that in mind, Senator Rogers worked for months with the Secretary of Ed, Katie Jenner, myself, and others to put together a comprehensive plan for reading in education. Senator Rogers wanted you all to know uh, she's calling the bill Senate Bill 1, and for her purposes, every child learns to read bill. Yesterday, she told me that she gathered 30 co-authors on the bill, which shows how important it is to the members of the Indiana Senate. The bill requires every Indiana school to have a plan for reading instruction that follows the science of reading. Next, we're making changes to improve early identification and remediation of children struggling to read. Schools will check with students in kindergarten, first and second grade to make sure they are on track to be proficient in reading by the end of the third grade. All students who are not on track must be given extra support through reading remediation. Next, we're requiring all schools to give the IRB tests at the end of second grade. Students who pass in second grade won't need to take the test any longer. They'll go third grade, fourth grade, keep on going. 
students who don't pass in second grade will be offered summer school between their second and third grade, and they will get the remediation support for their entire third grade before taking iRead again. Students then get two more opportunities to take iRead in third grade. After all this, if a student's still not been able to demonstrate that they can read by passing iRead, then Indiana will have a limited retention policy, preventing these students from being passed on in fourth grade. There are some exceptions to this retention policy. It doesn't apply to IEP students, certain English language learners, and students who have already been held back once. If a student can pass our state math test, but not iRead, we will let them go on to fourth grade, but require that they get remedial reading support to continue uh, preparing to be able to continue to move on. As, as we lay out this bill today to you all, I hope you'll see that we're what we're trying to accomplish. This is not a retention bill. Retention is at the absolute last resort after we've exhausted all other methods to help struggling student readers. And with that said, we, we believe retention is the necessary policy for students who can't read by the end of third grade if they don't qualify for an exemption. Some may say retention is not good for the child, but what isn't good is to move students on without foundational reading skills. To send these students on through school without the ability to read sets them up to struggle throughout the rest of their education and potentially the rest of their lives. There are a lot of good things in Senate one to help kids learn to read. We're going to catch them early, give them those who need the, the extra support so they can be successful. In last year's budget, if you recall, we committed $60 million to help students implement, help schools, excuse me, implement the science of reading. And when you look at everything we're doing, uh, for students in Indiana, it's all hands on deck to make sure that kids can read by the time they finish third grade. And with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Sharberman. Uh, thank you, Senator Rotz. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here today. I truly appreciate it. Um, we all know that the, the child care uh, is, for working families has become very um, out of reach in, in many respects. I have termed child care as an infrastructure bill since the time we started talking about it because it affects every aspect of our economy. And it's something that I hadn't spent very much time thinking about until it got assigned to our summer study committee. And the stu summer study committee did a remarkable job of diving into this issue and coming up with a series of recommendations. Every one of those recommendations was addressed individually. Every one of those recommendations was adopted unanimously by all members of the committee. Most all of those recommendations are in Senate Bill 2 uh, in one form or another. We have families that are in a catch-22 today, a family with a young child. They either bite the bullet, really cut back on everything to be able to afford to put their in a child into a child care center or give it up, give up the job, and stay home to be a parent with the child. Um, 
And, and those kinds of issues affect everyday Hoosiers, and they affect every business that we have in the state of Indiana. Last session, it was a budget session, and we did a, a good job, I think, of addressing the uh, child care area. Um, we expanded eligibility for statewide on my way pre-K and established tax credits for employers that we create new child care slots for their employees. And I also uh, want to commend the governor for what he's done uh, using $25 million of pandemic stimulus money to expand the, the child care seats. That's all great. We now know that we're into uh, 2024. Uh, it's not a budget year, so we're gonna have to watch what we do. Do we sit and do nothing because we have no money to spend? No. This gives us an opportunity to kind of dive in and look at the issues that, that no, normally we might not look at because we have money to take care of it. Well, we don't now. So now we're getting in and looking what are the kinds of things that we can do um, uh, to address childcare in a non-financial way. Uh, we address the shortfall of workers and we address barriers to uh, underserved areas. Um, it expands the criteria for who can be a child care worker. And one of the other big things that, that is in here is a, a pilot program for three pilot micro centers, micro child care centers in the state of Indiana. I would think there'd be one up north, one center, one in the south, but these would be small. You know, generally when we think about child care centers, they have to be large for the economies of scale. These would be small, maybe three to 20 or 30, and with some, some working with the regulations to allow those to pop up and create child care centers in rural areas that are basically very under, underserved in, in this area. Um, finally, child care, like health care that I've dealt with and still dealing with, like water that I've dealt with, is not going to be fixed overnight. And we have to look at this long term. But I think what we're doing in Senate Bill 2, I'm very excited about, um, is going to make a difference for child care, for parents of children, and for employers in the state of Indiana. With that, I uh, thank you again. I would like to introduce, uh, uh, I would like to introduce Tyler. I didn't know how I was going to introduce him. Dr. Tyler, or Senator Dr. Tyler Johnson. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Charbonneau. So in my day job, like you said, I'm in an emergency position and I see up close the complicated arrangements that patients have to navigate as part of our healthcare delivery system with hospitals, doctors, office settings, and insurance companies. Indiana has rightfully made the health of Hoosiers a priority and passed a lot of important healthcare reform in the last few years. The next area screaming out to be looked into and improved is prior authorization. 
prior authorization, often referred to as prior auth, is something most people have dealt with. It's when insurance companies require the people I'm taking care of, people are getting taken care of, to get prior approval for a service before the insurer will agree to pay for that service. The original idea behind prior auth was that it could contain healthcare costs. A lot of the discussions over the last few years, we realized that just hasn't happened. Really what we see is every day, prior auth becomes a huge hurdle to patients getting the care that they need. It becomes a big hoop for physicians to jump through to take care of the patients in the way they want to and they need to. Unfortunately, there's often not much common sense in that whole process. At the end of the day, the people who are affected most are Hoosier patients because prior auth slows down or even stops their ability to get care. There was a great investigative report by ProPublica last year that found a health insurance company using algorithms essentially to deny thousands of health claims. Behind every one of those claims was a patient seeking care. Imagine if you were one of those patients. One example is a mom whose testing and care got delayed months and months to the point where her prognosis changed from a minor <coughs> treatment to losing a leg and then eventually losing her life because of those decisions. You can't let that stand. Do you want your health decisions made by some algorithm or your doctor who has a duty to care for you and knows you? I think I know the answer to that. This brings me to our prior off reform bill, Senate Bill 3, something we worked hard on this summer. This bill has a number of important reforms to make the prior auth system work better for our patients. If you look at everything in this bill, it is about patient protection. I'll give a few examples before turning over to Senator Garden here. Senate Bill 3 would eliminate prior auth altogether for emergency services, routine care, and common prescription drugs. It would also set a cap on overall prior auth so that insurer, an insurer would be, require prior auth for no more than 1% of providers and 1% of any given service. The original idea is prior auth was there to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse, but we don't need somebody second guessing every claim. We really only need to allow a few samples of non-routine services to be reviewed, if at all. That's exactly what would happen under this bill. Senate Bill 3 also says that every prior auth review must be done by a licensed physician with expertise in the type of claim being filed. And those physicians would owe that same duty of care to that patient that I would taking care of them. When there's a dispute, we're asking that an independent physician, not on the payroll of the insurance companies, to do the appeal. So no more computer algorithms deciding what type of health care Hoosiers are getting. This is a bill that will get discussed a lot this session, and even more as it progresses. But I'm confident that we can pass some really important reforms here to help patients and that will make the healthcare system better working for our Hoosier patients. Now we'll hear from Senator Garden on Senate Bill 4. Good morning, and thank you, Senator Johnson. In Indiana, we pride ourselves on being one of the most fiscally responsible states in the country. We have low taxes, which are getting even lower. We have a balanced budget with healthy reserves. We are aggressively paying down pension debt. It's no secret that as a personal legislative priority of mine has been simply good government. Cutting waste where there's waste and holding government accountable for taxpayer dollars. 
Most recently, I had the privilege of chairing the Government Reform Task Force, where my colleagues and I zeroed in on another way that Indiana can yet again demonstrate our fiscal responsibility for Hoosier taxpayers. One of the recommendations from that Good Government Task Force, as I like to call it, was to create a continuous review of state government funds with the specific purpose of identifying taxpayer dollars that are just sitting dormant in accounts. My Senate Bill 4 embodies this task force recommendation. Moving forward, the state of, excuse me, moving forward, the state budget agency will prepare a report that identifies the balance of dedicated funds that have not been used for the prior two years. It also makes recommendations from the state budget director. This report will be submitted in the fall before each legislative budget session. The General Assembly will then have the opportunity to legislate any changes that we may want to make regarding these unused funds. But if the money remains unused at the end of the fiscal year, it will revert back to the general fund. The idea here is simple but critical. To the promise of good government, the Hoosier taxpayers have given their hard-earned money to the state of Indiana. We owe it to them to put those dollars to good use. If we have any money sitting in some ignored fund going unused, we are not being the best possible stewards of Hoosier tax dollars. And that doesn't sit right with Senate Republicans. Our best estimate right now is that Senate Bill 4 would free up just north of $40 million of unused funds during the first review cycle. About $23 million of that would be transferred from the Medicaid, transferred to the Medicaid reserve account to help our Medicaid shortfall in this fiscal year. And nearly 20 million would revert to the general fund in 2025. Obviously those numbers could change as this bill moves through the legislative process. But that's just in the first two year review cycle. Senate Bill 4 creates an ongoing process that will help us put tax dollars to good use continually. So the long-term savings will be even greater. I would be remiss if I didn't thank the state budget agency for their partnership on this bill. Their testimony at the interim task force meetings and their diligent work since then have been invaluable to the preparation of this legislation. The review of dormant funds is the biggest piece of Senate Bill 4, but I want to note that the bill contains a few other recommendations from the Government Reform Task Force, including streamlining the ability for state agencies to cut or eliminate fees on Hoosier taxpayers. Instead of having to go through the full rulemaking process, which takes months and months, State agencies will now be able to cut or eliminate fees through interim rules, which takes far less time to adopt. I'm proud of Senate Bill 4 because it's a direct product of good government. Because it reflects Hoosier's common sense, excuse me, Hoosier common sense, and will do some real good for taxpayers. Thank you, and now we're going to hear from Senator Cook about Senate Bill 5. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Here in the legislature, we spent a lot of time over the past few years talking about improving Hoosier health. That's why Senator Johnson's prior authorization bill is all about. Chairman Charbonneau has been a long time leader on that issue, as has Senator Garton, in addressing high health care costs for Hoosier. This session, I'm bringing Senate Bill 5, which addresses a different aspect of Hoosier health, and that is the quality of our drinking water. Now, the cat's already out of the bag on this one because we heard it this morning in the Utilities Committee, first thing, and it passed unanimously. But allow me to briefly recap the reason Senate Bill 5 is so important. 
As you know, Congress banned the installation of new lead water lines throughout America in 1986. The reason why is obvious. As lead lines age and wear down, they release toxic lead into drinking water. This can create a host of serious health problems, such as heart disease, decreased kidney function, and cancer. In children, it can severely harm mental and physical development, slowing down learning and damaging the brain. The science here is clear. There is no safe level of lead exposure. But nearly 40 years after America banned new lead lines, we still have an estimated 9 million old lead lines in service throughout the country. That includes over 265,000 lead service lines here in Indiana. The longer we wait to replace these lines, the more Hoosiers are at risk. The EPA is now considering a new rule that would require the replacement of most existing lead lines within 10 years. But we need to do better. So I've worked with Indiana's water utilities to come up with a bill that will help them replace Indiana's remaining lead water lines with a greater sense of urgency, efficiency, and lower cost. Senate Bill 5 outlines the procedures utilities can follow to get these lead lines out of the ground faster and replaced with safe water lines. I want to note that any utilities action under the bill would be subject to prior approval by the IURC, so we have an oversight body making sure this effort is carried out in a responsible way. Right now, we have just three Indiana utility companies with approved lead line replacement plans. I'm optimistic that once Senate Bill 5 passes, more utilities will begin carrying out this important work. The end goal is to finally get these lead lines out of the ground for Hoosiers and do it in the fastest and most cost-efficient way possible. Thank you again. Now it's time to turn things back over to Senator Brady. Thank you, Senator Cook. So there you have it, Senate Bills 1 through 5. As always, these, like any other bill, uh, may see changes as they, as they go through the process, and that's okay. That's how our process works. Uh, we have plenty of work to do ahead of us, and we're ready to get these bills uh, through the legislative process as quickly and exped expeditiously as we can. Um, with that, I and the other bill authors would be happy to answer questions that you have. I have a question for Senator Sherman. Go ahead. On uh, child care. I know you're done. Um, uh, Come on actually, up, a couple of questions on it. First, when you're talking about reducing or getting rid of regulations, how do you make sure that you're balancing both quality and safety while reducing those regulations? You know, that's a, um, a balancing act that would go through any time we're reducing or trying to limit regulations that we put on on, uh, on, on anything that we, we do. So it's going to be a process. And certainly, there is no way that I'd be interested, and I'm sure none of the healthcare providers or anyone else is, is going to be interested in putting any of our children at risk. And then the other thing was, what are you hoping to learn from the pilot program with these micro centers? Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, what they are, I, th I think it's important to understand what they are. Generally, we're the, the, the centers are pretty large, and yet they have to be large for, as I said, economies of scale. And this is going to be a, a very small, half the size, even less, from from three to thirty, that 
how, how these can actually work um, with regard to staffing and it, 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 it's their trials or something that we're going to look at to see and it would be awesome if they can work which I think they can for the rural areas that are a dearth of, of child care centers and this is a way to solve that problem. Thank you. I have a question for us uh, under Ross. Um, the reading bill, that exception seems pretty broad and kind of in line with what's already happening. Uh, how many, do you have any idea how many students are being passed on to fourth grade right now that failed both the Ivory and the math test? Uh, it's about one in five. I mentioned that in another exact number. I can't tell you, uh, but, but that's the number of the statistic that the department has shared with us. That's on reading. Is that both reading and math? That, that is uh, going on for I read three, not just math. Okay. Yeah. Now, it's all, I, my perception is only not passing I read three. It has nothing to do with math. Okay. So, yeah, so we have the idea then how many students yeah, are being passed on to fourth grade that are both failing, I read, and failing the math test. If, if everybody's following the law that they should, there is a good cause exemption that is actually is included, is still part of this, uh, which if a student passes math and they're struggling reading, they can still pass on. And, and part of this bill actually addresses that. And that's why, that's why it's difficult to get all these statistics together. Is that not what's already happening? That, that's what that's exactly what I iterated is, is happening and so uh, that's part of the part of the concern out there is that we're going to retain too many students and so I think this is a pretty balanced way to say we recognize that what's the, in the concept of a social cost of a student being held back or or what's the future cost of that student being moved on and so the concept of uh, understanding and being able to function in math and that uh, and, and being able to then uh, get the reading piece in the fourth grade and, and be able to continue on from there. So I think uh, you know, that, that was a, a lot of the concern that we had was when we looked at the, the social costs and some of the pushback from folks in the field. And, and in all reality, honestly, some school districts probably have some decent programs in place, but they take it upon themselves. There's nothing that stops them from doing anything, really. Uh, it just becomes routine behavior, but, but that, uh, that have taken, I uh, was in a school uh, about two years ago where they would pass a kid on to uh, fourth grade that could do math, and math wasn't a problem, but couldn't read, and then half, during the daytime, they would transition back to third grade, back to that class and, at the appropriate time and, and get the remediation in the normal schedule. So there are a lot of good things happening out there, but it's, it's not consistent and not uniform. And, and, and for those kids who are passed on after failing the reading test um, for the limited retention policy you're talking about under this bill, whether it's passing math or some of the other um, uh, exemptions. Uh, exemption. Is there any ongoing required testing to make sure that at some point they are catching up? Well, there, there is a parts of this bill that, that, that do uh, require the remediation. Uh, so, so summer school and things along those lines. And, and I'll just say one last thing that the next bill, Senate Bill 6, actually, uh, we, the department uh, has determined that in the iLearn test, we can determine the Lexile scores of students. It's already embedded in there. So if you look at Senate Bill 6, it's, we're going to identify kids past that uh, that maybe are, are a result of COVID uh, and, and been able to have moved on 
uh, as a basis in there, but we, we'll be able to look at them and get some remediation there as well. So it's entirely comprehensive, uh, knowing that we're doing our very best to balance everything, but make sure that kids can read because it's so fundamental. Even moving on in math, there are math problems. Obviously, there are going to be reading problems uh, that they'll have difficulty. So it's fundamental to success. And not only that, one thing we haven't talked about is behavioral issues. Uh, if you know, they get past uh, third grade and aren't, aren't able to read, it causes issues there as well. So it's, it's a comprehensive issue. And I think we're, we're close with a balanced uh, approach here. Can I, real quick, can I add yeah. one other thing to what to Brandon's question? I think this was right, Senator Hudson, if I'm wrong. Correctly, but uh, to your question about is there additional testing after they move on one of those exemptions to fourth, fifth grade? I think the answer is yes. They'll continue to take I read until they pass that. Sorry. Until some yeah. until some point in, in the future. Well, the way I read the bill, it requires schools to offer some sort of reading remediation efforts. Is there any pressure on the student to actually take those up? I think in summer school, I don't know how many students want to take summer school. Uh, it, it is uh, there. We're not going to force anybody to go to summer school. And then also, you know, this is largely up to school discretion now anyway. You know, are we actually going to make any, you know, do you think that retention is just going to kind of flatline or do you think it will actually pick up after this because it's not a shower? Uh, I would guess that retention is going to not spike drastically but, but would go up. That's the intention of the bill. Uh, and, and, you know, we expect that everybody out there uh, wants students to read. If I were, uh, you can, I think teachers do a great job, and I think the desire is to see kids read. Uh, and so everybody's going to have to work together. It, it works all together. Yeah. And so there's a reference to it in there, but, but the real work on science of reading was done last year. Question about Senate Bill 5. Um, in terms of the customer-owned part of these less service lines, what is going to be the cost of that? I know there are certain programs that can help, sure. over, but are they going to be increased? How is that going to work? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, the bill applies to commission-approved customer-owned less uh, service line plans. And currently, there are three companies, Fort Wayne City Utilities, Citizens here in town, and Indiana American. And those plans have their own uh, timetables and funding sources. Um, they are usually supported by a small tracker on the bill. But that doesn't even come close to covering the overall cost. Um, when you consider the customer side and the company side to your question, that cost is eight to $10,000. Now, we are told that there are over 265,000 lead service lines here in Indiana. So you do that math and you see we have a $2 billion plus problem. Um, if it were not for IFA and federal and state dollars, um, the rate alone would, would not cover it. So I told my committee this morning, um, in my view, this is really the beginning of this conversation rather than the end. Thank you. Yeah. Great question. Um, as I worked on the bill, what I heard from the companies was despite their, their best efforts, uh, many property owners are unresponsive or recalcitrant. And as you would surmise, most of these are older homes, and many of them 
rental properties. And it, the, the faster and more efficiently they can go, the lower the cost will be and the sooner we can get it done. And so the impetus of this bill is removing that lag time, that barrier, so they don't have to remobilize back in a neighborhood. The quicker they can go through a neighborhood house to house, the sooner they can get it done, the more efficiently they can get it done. And because of the scarce dollars involved, the less expensive they can get it done. I was pleased uh, this morning in committee, we had the support of Citizens Action Coalition and the AARP um, supporting this bill. AARP and others. Thank you. Question for Senator Bray. Senator Freeman's bill prohibited the improvement in California and dedicated lights for the blue line. Speaker Houston has expressed interest in looking at this issue. What are your thoughts on the Senator's bill, and do you think there's appetite for caucus to get this out of your chamber? Well, it's not the first time he's filed that bill, as you might be aware. And we're it's going to go to the committee. They're going to debate it and discuss it and decide whether it's good policy or not. I think, yeah, I think Senator Freeman has had some conversations with the speaker about that, and uh, he, made, he made some comments yesterday. I didn't hear them. But uh, from, for our side of the, uh, the building, it's going to go to the committee. They're going to debate it and decide whether it makes sense to move forward or not. I, I don't know what committee that will be. So, yes. Um, House Republicans are there to uh, this year, they have revived the anti-Semitism on college campuses legislation. Do you see that having any momentum in the Senate this year? Yeah, we'll take a look at it. Uh, if it comes over here, and I suspected that it will, it's obviously a priority item for them. And, uh, you know, that is a, um, the, the world's a complicated place, and that is perhaps the most complex. And uh, we've watched tragically the things play out there since early October. And uh, so the world's a little bit of a different place than it was even last year. So uh, we're going to take, if it comes over here, we're going to take an extremely serious look at it. Senator Jackson about Senate Bill 3. Um, you said that prior authorization uh, must be done by a physician with set expertise and given procedure with prescription drug or what have you. Is there a concern that that could further overburden an already overburdened workforce? It, it really is an important part of it because what happens is those delays are taking up the workforce now, right? So a lot of time and effort on office staff and hospitals and physicians, people that just want to take care of patients, they're putting a lot of effort into getting the patients qualified for the care that they should already be qualified for. And so the goal is to reduce the overall burden altogether. So it actually should improve that. Are you confident the insurance, I mean, obviously the insurance companies are going to follow the law whenever it's passed, but are you confident that they're prepared to do something? I think I saw it was July 1st effective date. Are you confident that they're prepared to do everything that they would have to do under this bill? It's something we'll have to talk through quite a bit, but uh, you know, it's something that's important that should get done that quick. How did you arrive at the one percent number? Uh, the one percent number is there's there's a lot of places that do do this fairly well, and the one percent number was an area that originally, when this was discussed, that was a kind of an archaic number if you think about it that way. That hey, we want to look at this number of cases and say. Here's a good way to look at this. In reality, we already have mechanisms through the state to look for fraud. You know, in my career, I've interacted with one physician who was really committing fraud, and he went to jail, and that's where he should be, right? So there's already a lot of mechanisms in place for this. So we really want to trim it down to the point where it's meaningful. Senator Brink, I have a question for you on Senate Bill 187, uh, which seeks to prohibit public transportation companies from providing. Uh, 
you know, I, uh, I, I saw the bill assigned it to the elections committee, I believe, actually. So, well, I'm sorry. Did they go to the government? Okay. Um, and uh, but I think it's Senator Burns' bill. And uh, uh, I think uh, I'll have to let him speak for his bill. I haven't uh, had a conversation with him about that yet. Oh, we will have. We have not yet. There's a lot of talk about solving the issue of chronic absenteeism. We have a session and an absent from your agenda, and also the House Republicans and members. Why is it not, I guess, on your priority? Well, so it, uh, there's a lot of bills that are being filed by senators that are important, but just not necessarily on this list of five. And Senator Donato has been working really hard on that bill. And uh, truancy is a significant problem, as I've said before. In fact, there are buildings, school buildings out across the state of Indiana where one out of every two kids are considered chronically absent. And uh, it's not difficult, uh, uh, even for me, to make the connection between that chronic absenteeism and uh, reading proficiency. So it's uh, super important. You'll see us given a full, uh, full value this year to try and get something done. And you know, the other thing about it, though, is may well find some way forward with some legislation, but I think the biggest part, we've got a pretty decent system right now in the state of Indiana with uh, children in need of services. If you're a K through three grade or a young child going to school and you're not getting to school, that's very likely a parent problem. If you're 16 years old and you're not getting to school, there may be a parent issue there, but it might be a, probably a juvenile delinquent problem that needs to be handled in that side of the, uh, of the local county courthouse. And uh, so at the, at the very least, even if we don't get anything done, I'm, just, I'm not saying we won't, because we very well, very well could. I think it's just really important to have a conversation so that all of us, our schools, our law enforcement, our judicial uh, side of the, uh, uh, the branch of government, all puts a, another eye on this, because I think we've all sort of taken our eye off that ball a little bit. Senator, I have a question about House Bill 1291. It's already causing some controversy on the other side. What, what is it? I have no House idea. House Bill 1291 is a gender term bill that would change uh, gender to biological sex in a number of laws. Um, they're, are, they're already codified. Some of them obviously are trumped by federal statute. Does the Senate have any kind of appetite to deal with those kinds of issues? I don't know. We'll take a look at it and have One more. One more. Have you, have you uh, has the Senate changed its view anymore on the 13th check issue? And do you anticipate doing anything with the water district bills that have been filed? Oh, so a couple of things. Thirteenth check first. Um, the uh, um, obviously an important issue, important to lots of folks across the state of Indiana. The House has made it a priority item. Senator Buchanan chaired an interim study committee this year that I think helped bring that issue more into focus and helped a lot of folks, including myself, understand it better. And um, uh, so he's got a bill on that as well. It's, it's markedly different than the bill that the, uh, that the House has. Bottom line is we'll have a we'll have a serious conversation about that. Can't tell you where we'll land just yet, but uh, I think that interim study committee was productive. I think members of both the House and Senate probably understand the issue better, plus the financial uh, cost or responsibility that comes along with it in the state of Indiana. So I think armed with that new information, uh, we can have a very productive conversation about that issue. Okay, year in year out. One final thing with regard to your question on the leak piece. Um, I think it's probably not a secret. Most of you might know that um, this is a really important issue for the state of Indiana. It's super important for Senator Deary and uh, the Tippecanoe uh, County community up there. So much so that the governor and the speaker and I went up in earlier in December of last year now 
uh, to, to talk to many of the uh, stakeholders up there to reassure them that this is, and we recognize this, is a very serious issue. Uh, there's lots of great things going on in the economic development right now. As you all saw, more than $28 billion of capital investment came into the Indiana last year. We're going to have another fantastic year in 24, it seems. But we need to make sure that people know, uh, first of all, it seems that we have an ample supply of water in the state of Indiana. Uh, but we need to verify that with data and, uh, and appropriate scientific studies. And once those scientific studies are done and they're shared with everybody who matters and, and the ability to then go look through that data and verify it themselves, then uh, we can start to make decisions on uh, what that might look like. And we will not make decisions until then. Um, having said all that, we'll give uh, Senator Deary's bill a very serious look. It's a, it's a thoughtful way to try and approach something that's very important to this district and, frankly, all the state of Indiana. So we'll give it a hard look. Thank you all. Happy to be here today. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.